0: Welcome back, everyone, to Where Does It Say That? A pet peeve of ours is that the church of today uh, is embroiled in, uh, the best word I can think of it is, doctrianity, um, to where people in the early church who were fishermen and farmers could clearly understand commands and uh, how things worked within the church and, and what God expected of us. but But now it takes a phd to understand all of the different terms all of the different doctrines everything that uh, we're supposed to understand as christians so today uh my co-host matt is going to uh, really break down um, we're going to do an introduction but he is going to break down the large subject of the atonement so that uh, you know even even myself where we can all understand it uh, because the ideas were understood by the early Christians, uh, we should be able to understand them as well. We should not have to go to college for four years to be able to understand what's in our Bible. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to him.
1: So we're gonna we're gonna start talking about the atonement. I think we'll probably do this in in a couple parts. Um, this is a very big topic. Um, so. First of all, what is atonement? The atonement is the at-one-ment. It's, that's what it is. So how the the question of the atonement is how are we reconciled to God? Um, what was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ? I mean, that's pretty central to, to Christianity, and and that has changed over the years. Um, what was accomplished in, in the death and resurrection of Christ um, why it's important, um, even to our discussion of Augustine and all of those things, w- we need to understand what was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ in the way that the Scriptures tell us. Because Augustine's coming in with some different thoughts. He he's he started to mix in that Manichaean and that Neoplatonic views of of the um, the depravity of man, the 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 total inability for man to come to God. Um, that's just not an early church position. We, we've discussed that at length. So we, we're we going to discuss Augustine's view of grace as opposed to the early church's view of grace. But we need to discuss the atonement to see what's going on here first. So so the at-one-ment, the, the reconciliation between God and man. What was accomplished in Christ's uh, death and resurrection? Um, so we want to try to de-theologize um, everything that's going on we don't want <clears throat> to we don't want this to be um, high level theology discussion. Th- theology has has somewhat destroyed the the faith um, Some theology is good but we, we don't need to have such a discussion that people can't understand what we're talking about um, in acts, one of my favorite parts of all of scripture is is when the the religious leaders, the comment is made when they realize that that these were uneducated fishermen but that they'd been with jesus um these are not great thinkers of of anything this is they said what they meant and they meant what they said um so without any further ado um when we talk about the atonement there are four models or theories of the atonement um the first one I'm going to mention is the ransom theory. Um, the ransom theory is, is the early church model. This is the early church model of the atonement. This is what the, the fathers believed were, was happening in the atonement. Um, and and just for open clarification for everybody, I believe this as well. This is what the scriptures teach. Um, so the ransom theory of the atonement, um, is that Christ gave his life as a ransom so mark 10 1035 i think it is 1035 um Christ gave his life as a ransom the thing that people have trouble with here is who did he give his life as a ransom to um, the early church would say that he gave his his life as a ransom to satan that we through the through adam's sin had gotten ourselves under the power of satan um, we were created to have dominion over the earth, um, but we, we lost that dominion uh, when Adam sinned. And so we have gotten ourselves under the control of Satan and we're subject to to death now. Um, so Christ gave himself as a ransom in order to to set us free from the power of sin and death. Um, I'm going to say quite a bit more about that later, but the if you've ever watched or read um, the Chronicles of Narnia... Um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that is the ransom model of the atonement that C.S. Lewis is putting out there. So Edmund um, gets himself in trouble and the White Witch says that she now has a claim on his life because all traitors belong to me. And basically that's what Adam did. It was he's a traitor against God. Um, So Edmund gets himself in trouble. The White Witch puts a claim on his life and she's going to she's going to kill him. But Aslan comes to her, the, the Jesus character, the lion in the in there. Aslan comes to her and he gives his life in exchange for Edmund's life. So she lets Edmund go in exchange for the right to kill him. Um, and she does kill him. But then he, he rises later because he was innocent. So that is the ransom theory of the atonement. Um, all these other models... Well the two later models that we're going to talk about are going to present as if a debt was owed to God um, Jesus is not paying the debt to God why if someone kidnaps you and takes you, you pay the ransom to the kidnapper um, for their release I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be released from God if he already had me it it's a it's a different way of thinking if if God had me, I don't need to be released from him. So, and I know right now, for those of you who are familiar with any of this discussion, the the thought of um, wrath and all of that stuff's going through your mind here. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. Um, A second theory model of the atonement is going to be the Christus Victor model. Um, Christ the victor, Christus Victor. Um, Very similar to... The ransom theory in this model, um, Christ has defeated the powers, the principalities, the dominions of darkness. Um, He's defeated them. He's won the victory, um, victory over sin and death. So it goes right along with the ransom theory. Um, I I really kind of, I can see both clearly in scripture. Uh, Now, where we run into trouble, those those are the models of the early church. Where we run into trouble then is in 1100 AD, a little monk named Anselm comes up with a theory called the satisfaction model of the atonement. So notice that I said the 1100 AD. So all the early church, um, as early as 97 AD, up until 1100 AD, the ransom theory of the atonement and Christus Victor model are it. That's what the church believes. The satisfaction model comes in 1100-ish AD. Um, and so Anselm would say that God is a king. And if you um, slight a king or you commit offense against a king, then what is required is your life. Um, something has to be made to make it right satisfaction has to be paid to that that king or lord that noble person so since god is is the creator of the universe he's infinitely valuable he is the sovereign he's the king um, and you have offended him then your life is due to make satisfaction for that offense and christ comes in and gives his life in place of your life to make satisfaction to god um let's just be honest about it. All that is, is medieval chivalry. If if you are a peasant out here in the fields and you're working and, and a Lord rides by you on his horse and you don't acknowledge him, then that's an offense to him. And he can require a beating your life. What take your house, whatever, because you didn't um, acknowledge him. You didn't um, give him his respect that was due. So he needs satisfaction. Um, And he can't just let that go. A king can't just let that offense go. Satisfaction has to be made. So he's functioning on medieval chivalry. God can't just let it go that you've sinned against him. There has to be satisfaction made there. So Christ comes in and he substitutes his life for yours. This is also called the substitution model. Um, The last one is then penal substitution. Um, so, instead of just making satisfaction for it, now you are going to be punished um, eternally for your sin and your transgression, and Christ steps in in the way, and his His satisfaction, his substitution for you is now penal. He takes the penalty that was due to you. He's not just stepping in to... to uh, mitigate the offense against the the king that you've made over here. He is actually being punished by God for you. That's what most of us have grown up with, right? Christ has, has stepped in and took the punishment that was due you in your place um, in order so that you would go free. Um, the problem is there's no such thing as penal substitution until 1865 when Charles Hodge um, identifies it. It starts to to develop when Luther and Calvin and, and the reformers start to grab hold of of the substitution satisfaction model. They start to look at it. Well, it's even worse than that. They would say there has to be um, it's penal in nature. There has to be a a punishment meted out here. Um, so those are the those are the the four kind of theories models of the atonement. Um, There's nothing in Scripture that says that Christ is paying your debt to the Father. There's no such thing. It's not there. There's no explicit mention of that. There is an explicit mention of ransom. Um, The Scripture, if you take ransom as the model of the atonement, the Scripture works just fine all the way around it. Uh, my question that I would have to people that 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 go with penal substitution is that it's it's somewhat double jeopardy. So Christ came in, and He took all the penalty of the Father. The Father has exhausted His wrath on Christ in in your on your behalf. Um. So then, how does the Scripture say that God forgives? Because if I owe a debt to the bank of $100,000 and you come in and you pay my debt to the bank, did the bank forgive me? No, they were satisfied. They received their money. They they got what was due. So how can it be said that they forgive me? What also turns around then, if God exhausted all of his wrath that was due to me on Christ, then how can I be justly punished? Because all the wrath has been spent. See, these these are things that that just don't make sense at all. Now, the Calvinist later is going to get around that by saying Christ only died for the elect. He only did that for his elect people, and the rest of y'all are just kind of out there, and you're going to hell anyway. So don't worry about it. Um, we'll we'll discuss Calvinism at length. Um, on down the line but they're going to get around that by by trying to say limited atonement which is completely unbiblical and there's there's nothing there's no no scripture to back that up it's just simply based on this penal substitution model that they come up with of the atonement which isn't biblically based at all it doesn't show up till 1865 but the whole thing just works great if you just have this group of people that God sovereignly elected by particular grace because they couldn't come to God on their own well Jesus only died for those people he took the wrath and the penalty for those people you see how it ties back to Augustine cuz Augustine believes in that particular redemption that God picked a group of people that were going to going to be saved and they can't do anything about it and that's the only way they can be saved and the rest of y'all are just going to hell so that's just how it works out sorry um the the scriptures are are are, are very clear on the nature of what goes on with God. So I I think the clearest place to go is to the parable in Matthew 18, um, to understand this, this, this model of what's going on here. Um, this is the, the model where we have the, the slave that, that can't pay back the debt. So he owes this debt of, of whatever, 10,000 talents, I think it is, And there's no way he can pay it. And he falls down on his face before this king and he begs for mercy and the king forgives him. He says, be merciful with me, Lord, and I'll repay you everything. And the king has mercy on him and he lets him go and he forgives him the debt. And that same slave walks out and he he finds another slave that owes him some money, maybe 20 bucks. Um, And he says, hey, pay me. And the other guy says, be patient with me. I'll give you everything I got. And he says, no. And he starts choking him. And these other slaves are horrified that this guy received all that mercy and then um, then did the same thing to his fellow slave. And they go back to the king and they say, hey, dude. And the king calls him back in. He says, you know, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt. You should have forgave him. And and he he reinstates the debt. Um, but the forgiveness is there. God God says that he can forgive. Sin. Oh, man, I'm going to say something bad if I'm not careful. The forgiveness of sin is not a problem for God. Um, The offense is against God. God can forgive the offense. The problem in the the early church that they're going to talk about, um, and I agree, Scripture talks about is we are under the control of Satan. So even if my sin is forgiven, I still have a problem. I'm still going to die. I'm still under the curse of sin and death. Um, So Christ comes in and pays that penalty for me. Because he's innocent, he didn't deserve the penalty that he got. So he's resurrected. Um, He is not, he has no, no, there's no claim on him by sin and death. Satan has no claim on him. He's never sinned. God can forgive my sin. If I'm loyal then to Christ, if I don't fall back into that slavery to sin and death, um, I'm thinking of Romans, you're you're a slave to that which you obey. If if I don't fall back into that sin and death, if I remain loyal to Christ, the forgiveness of sin is not the problem. I've not fallen back under the the ownership of of another, if you will. Um I, I the the main issue there, Ethan, is is that Satisfaction and the penal substitution remove the forgiveness of God from the equation. God is um, exacting His punishment because you have um, transgressed Him. There's no forgiveness there. He was paid and paid in full. So that's a that's a a beginning to the argument. About the atonement. Now, there's a lot of other things to be said there. Of course, um, we'll need to have a discussion about limited atonement. We'll need to have a discussion about uh, grace and and those kind of things. But I wanted to get that out there in a way that we can understand, maybe get some people thinking, so that they're ready for part two. Um, we're going to go very in depth in this discussion. We're going to bust open the scriptures and and really hammer it out. Um, I will be called a heretic. Um, And unorthodox and everything else for not affirming penal substitution. Um, As a general rule, if something is only 150 years old, I I don't affirm it. Um, Something you and I have talked about a hundred times. Jude makes the statement, um, brethren, I I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I felt it necessary to write to you and and urge you to, to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Whatever Jude thinks the faith is, that's been once for all handed down to the saints, it is, it's is—it's decided, it's done. The faith, once for all handed down to the saints. Whatever that is in Jude's mind is decided before the end of the writing of the New Testament. Likely before the year 100 A.D., or maybe shortly thereafter, um, I, I would put Jude a little bit sooner than that. But whatever the faith is, is done at that point. So I'm, I'm a little leery of new theories of what was going on that show up at 1100 A.D. It's a, a, a thousand years after Jude wrote down that the faith was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, and now all of a sudden we've got those things going on. We have to be careful with those. So when you talk about doctrinity, that's exactly what happens. We we come up with these doctrines, these things that we want to overthink about with, with scriptures, rather than just reading the Bible and doing what it says. Or if I, if I need clarification, if I need help with something, if I've got a, a guy that was a disciple of an apostle, or the 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 pupil of a, a disciple of the apostles like like an Irenaeus a, a disciple of Polycarp who's a direct disciple of John i'm going to take what he has to say about what John meant over a catholic monk in 1100 AD or um Luther or Calvin um Charles Hodge, any of those guys. So I'll be unorthodox, and I'll be called a heretic, but I, I do believe that the, the ransom theory of the atonement is the correct model of the atonement.
0: Well, thank you for that, Matt. I know that you've done extensive research in, in looking at these things, and so to, to be able to break it down, uh, as we said, p- people in the first century who were you know, who heard these words firsthand— the people that wrote these words and the people that uh, taught these words that are in, in Scripture for the first couple hundred years. I mean, it, it, they're like us. They're they're simple people. None of them had PhDs in theology. And um, I, like you, I would rather trust someone who knew an apostle um, or who was maybe two generations removed from an apostle because that, that seems like it would be a purer faith than the evolution that we've seen happen that we've talked about in past episodes, the evolution that's happened over time to the church and the splits that have happened. Um, so people, as we say, read the original sources, you will absolutely love looking into the early church and seeing what they thought and what they said, these words meant. So if you come to a point in your Bible to where you think, okay, this is a little ambiguous. Maybe I don't fully understand this search the early church because people have been asking these same questions that we ask one another people were asking these in the first century uh, this is not profound, the things that we ask are not profound, the things we're doing are not profound uh, people have asked these questions and people have been talking about this for um, a couple thousand years so search the original sources, get familiar with them uh, and you can see what that what that faith really is and um, you can read these books by the people in the first two centuries or you can read uh, a book by someone who's 2,000 years away. And I can guarantee you that the book that was written in the first two centuries or the letters that were written in the first two centuries are a lot closer to the, the faith that was once for all handed down. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And we hope that this spurs you on to search your Bible, search the scripture, and uh, also search the early church to see the, the practices um, of those folks who are living just like we are.